Let's say God's word to us again. And I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, from verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us to understand this, Holy Spirit. Help us to receive it. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's that time of year when students have been arriving in Cambridge and uh, wondering if they're going to go to church and which church they're going to go to. And those who come to Eden uh, try us out and then very often decide to be with us. Um, will often decide, yes, I'm going to do student supper and in many cases do some of the other things that are on offer for students, like doing home-from-home home hospitality and uh, being invited out by an Eden member or couple or family on a regular basis for Sunday lunches. Another thing many students sign up for is a one-to-one, 
a chance to meet regularly with an older Christian, to read the Bible or a Christian book together, to talk about life, to receive encouragement and help and challenge and support. Quite a number of years ago, a new undergraduate in Cambridge, I'm not going to use his real name, um, we'll call him Steve, arrived. And he thought, yes, I'm going to come to Eden. And yes, I think I'd like to do a one-to-one. And so he was assigned a one-to-one with an older student, someone who's doing a PhD. They arranged to meet. And the first thing the older student said as they sat down together in that very first meeting was this. This was the the whole introduction to their relationship after a few pleasantries of getting into the room together. The older student said, Steve, do you want to be great? It's a true story. Unfortunately, I don't know what Steve said back. <laughs> I, was a bit, I mean, to say yes would be kind of slightly weird, and to say no, you know, I, I don't know what I would have said. Nor do I know that if Steve said yes, what the older student said to him about how he was going to become great. So it's a little bit like a story where someone's forgotten the punchline. <laughs> I can't quite imagine... Saying that to someone, it's not quite my style. But if I did, and the Steve who was in front of me said yes, particularly if they said it with a certain amount of uh, sort of eagerness, I think I would respond by drawing a curved line on a napkin. Something a little bit like this. It's arguable that this is the most important shape in the universe. Because this describes the way that God relates to us in Jesus Christ. And God, who quite rightly seeks for his own glory and seeks to establish his greatness, has chosen to follow this curve to do so. To flesh it out a bit, next slide. It's what's happening in Philippians chapter 2. The move down from glory, the glory of the eternal Son of God, into incarnation and being born in a manger to an insignificant family. The trials of his life, his final descent into the depths of hell upon the cross, and then his resurrection, his exaltation, his supremacy, and the glory that comes to him through the Father. Arguably the most important shape in the universe. 
and the most important shape for us in working out how we live our lives. And in the minutiae of relationships with each other within the church, this is the pattern Christ has given us. And this is the slipstream that we are to follow. For this great diagram of the way to be great hits us in the nitty-gritty of personal relationships and is Paul's way of explaining why we should take him seriously when he says, don't push yourself forward so much. Stop taking the lead so much and listen to other people a bit more. Stop putting people right all the time and actually be gentle and listen to them for a bit. Stop assuming that your point of view is the one that must be heard and listened to and accepted at all costs. Stop assuming that you're in a competitive relationship with other people in which you have to push yourself forward and make yourself great. Stop being so abrasive with other people in church. You do yourself no credit by doing that. Stop fighting together. This petty rivalry you two have been having all these years, don't you realise how ridiculous that is? Your hidden grudges. The way you sound off about other people at home and smile to them at their face. Now, I'm perhaps injecting a certain animus into my reproduction of what Paul's saying, but we have to take this seriously. It's about relationships in church and attitudes to other people. And you see, one of the things that that senior student could have said to the new undergraduate Dave when he was explaining to him how to be great is not just drawing this diagram. And he could have said to him, be known in the Christian union not as the one who forces himself on other people and tries to make his point of view, your point of view prevail and the sort of person who's always showing off. Although you could do those things. Be known as the one who looks out for the others and draws them in and is gentle to them and learns to be kind and accepting and seeking what they say and seeking their best and not your own. And if you do that, you'll find true greatness. Let's trace this through. Paul is, is making an appeal for that kind of humble, gentle, Christian behavior. And he does so on the basis that this is what Jesus himself has done. And in verses uh, 6 through to verse 8, as we saw last week, he traces that descent down from the glory to the incarnation to the crucifixion. And we have to start this week in verse 8 with what I'm calling here the deepest humiliation. The deepest humiliation. Next slide, Tom. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What he went through, we will never know. As Mike was talking about in his story, the the king who cleaned the toilets, um, my mind went back to a bit of my gap year and I worked on a kibbutz in Israel and some of the work was quite fun. I remember picking grapefruit and oranges and even the old lemon. I remember working in a 
plastic factory, um, which uh, was okay. Uh, and I was put on uh, a kind of rotating, washing up conveyor belt thing in the kibbutz canteen. And at one point, we had to clean it out. And there was the accumulated food grot of, well, I'm tempted to say of the ages. It was probably just a few months, but it was pretty rank. And we cleaned it out, and I found myself dry retching through most of it. The horror of the cross, the shame, the humiliation, the willingness to be seen as a failure, the willingness to be seen and to be disempowered, the willingness to bear the wrath of God, to endure death and hell itself. This was the deepest humiliation. And as we hear that, we hear Paul's appeal that we, sh- we too should go through lesser deaths in terms of putting our selfish selves to death. But you know, there's a danger with that. There's a danger with making an appeal for a humble, uh, self-denying attitude to life if we just stop with the cross of Christ. And sometimes the way that Christ's example has been appropriated in the broader church and even outside, this is all that you've got. And essentially, it it begs all sorts of questions. I mean, someone could say, well, why should I? You're asking me to be ready to die in all these respects. uh, That's that's asking for an embrace of failure and and weakness and disempowerment. Why should I? I have this urge to be great. I have this urge to use my power and to seek more power. Why should I give in to that other person and let them come out on top? Even though it doesn't feel just. And you see, an appeal for Christ-like living based only on the crucifixion will only take you so far. And if you never ever get beyond looking at the example of Christ, then there will be built in some kind of frustration and irritation and sense of loss. That's why Paul doesn't stop with verse 8. He goes on. Therefore, and this is the, the glory of the, uh, of the diagram. This is the glory of the line that goes, up, that goes down and then comes up again. This is the structure of history as God has created it and God has lived it. That after the deepest degradation and humiliation and loss, there comes God's recognition and God's exaltation. Of the sufferer. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. He's exalted, he's elevated, he's raised from the dead, his body brought back to life, and now given a supernatural and indestructible life that will last forever. Now he's free of pain and Any possibility of death, not just raised to new life, but raised to the highest place at the right hand of God on high. That in heaven itself, in the cockpit, in the boardroom, in the driving seat of the universe, Jesus is now honoured and exalted. Verse 10. 
Just think for a moment what joy there must have been for him. Perhaps especially in his humanity with all the suffering he'd been through. Now to be free of pain. Now to be free of shame. Now to be free of humiliation. To be vindicated by God himself. What total joy. Now sometimes people read this passage and they say, oh, is this the point where Jesus became God then? And no, no, it really isn't the point where Jesus became God. Jesus was always God. Oh, they say, well, it sounds like something's changed then. What, what's happening? The point is that now Jesus is exalted and lifted up on high as the God-man, the rescuer who's done his work, the saviour who can say it is finished, God's agent who has executed God's commission. He is there in the highest place as the God-man. Humanity elevated to the right hand of God, that's the change. How extraordinary that is, how dignifying that is for human beings, for human bodies, because he was not disembodied. He wasn't just a human soul. It was a human body that was and is at the right hand of God, prefiguring the future of all those who will trust in him. God exalted him to that very highest place. How wonderful that was. And we we need to note perhaps the change that this represents. As someone has said in his state of humiliation, you have this great contradiction. Here was God the Son, existing in the form of God and the glory of God with the names and titles and attributes of God, but all that seemed to be denied by his lone condition on earth, his low condition. It didn't square. God in a manger. God in a wedding. God exhausted and asleep in a boat, on a lake, in a storm. God, with blood running down his head, torn with anguish in a dark garden. God being whipped. God being nailed to a cross. God being dead in a tomb. It didn't square. It was such an effective incognito, a veiling and covering of the splendor which the creator of the universe must have. His condition was a contradiction of his status. But now that Christ is exalted, that contradiction is gone forever. He is where he deserves to be. I often run by the river in, in Chesterton and... Um, uh, it was a tradition for a long time of the university boat, college boat clubs painting things on the railway bridge. It, it seems to have um, vanished a bit in recent years, but I remember one a few years ago where uh, whoever it was who was uh, head of the river had just painted, and it must have been the initials of the college, and I can't remember which one it was, but it said the word that followed was simply, back where we belong. That kind of rather charming Cambridge arrogance that you very occasionally find. Now, Jesus is back where he belongs. 
Now as the Saviour who has accomplished salvation, elevated on high. And we notice his supreme acclamation by God. We should note that the humiliation was God's command. The elevation is God's work. And the acclamation is God's work too. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, people quiz this a bit and try and work out whether the name that is above every name is the name Jesus or whether it's the name, the word Lord. And I think the argument comes down best in terms of seeing it as the word Lord. But in the end, it's semantic. Because it's what the name means. It's what the name signifies. It's the power invested in that name that counts. And the relative supremacy of that name that matters. And we need to realize that in first century Philippi, this was a highly politicized statement because it was the name of Caesar that was seen as above every other name. Caesar, the Roman emperor, that was the supreme name. And in saying this and inviting them to affirm this, he's asking them to make a very significant political and indeed a statement that goes beyond all politics, which is that Jesus Christ for Christians is the supreme one. And all other authority is under him. And if even legitimate authority is exercised in such a way that our allegiance to him is compromised, he must come first. He's higher than Caesar. And just for a moment, all our ambitions and all our allegiances are relativized. Even those that seem most human, most close, most tender, most important. Jesus insisted throughout his ministry he had to come in a higher place than even your own children, your own parents, your own husband or wife. No other relationship can be more important than him. And we just pause for a minute and we just think of him with wonder, love and praise. And we allow the Holy Spirit to, to use that in terms of where we're at in our lives and just our experiences over the last week. Our own ambitions to be great, our own temptations at self-assertion and to push ourselves forward as being clever or to exert power over others. Perhaps our feelings of frailty and our feelings that there are powers over us that seem to dominate us or threaten us. And we come again to the Lord Jesus in wonder, love and praise. And we exalt him in our hearts. And we acclaim him as supreme. And we say, yes, Lord Jesus, you are number one. And we allow the impact of saying and thinking and feeling that to put everything else into the shade as we think of the God-man, our Savior, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, who entered deepest humiliation as we think of him now upon the throne of heaven and him wanting to form himself within us by his Spirit.
And then with Paul, we move forward to a time that is coming. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Building, I think, on a passage in Isaiah 45, which speaks in this way. Paul looks forward to that coming day where the name of Jesus, which now in so many places is ignored, scorned, marginalized, mocked, patronized, turned into a swear word or into some kind of magic formula, where it will be a name that every knee will bow to. Isaiah 45:22 Turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me every knee will bow By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. This is what's coming, folks. We're in season three of the box set, if you like. And we don't know quite what's happening in season four, but we know what's happening in season five. We absolutely know. And all the aspects of season five of the unfolding of the kingdom of God that we need to know, we absolutely know. That there will be a time When every single being, this is very comprehensive, in heaven and on earth and under the earth is one way of saying everything. And we can uh, debate a little bit, what does in heaven mean? Well, is that angels and demons on earth? Is that people who are alive under the earth? Is that people who are dead? In the end, it doesn't matter. It is every single being. And the image of bowing the knee is just, it needs no explanation, does it? It will all be bowed to Jesus Christ. There will be a total vindication of Jesus. What's that going to be like for Christians? Isn't it going to be the most tremendous relief? (laughs) We actually did sign up to the winning side. (laughs) You know, when you're, like when you're cooking something, you don't know quite whether it's going to work out. And there are all sorts of ways in which this particular cake could have gone wrong, and actually it hasn't gone wrong. 
The relief is going to be extraordinary, as well as lots and lots of other things. We can be absolutely guaranteed we will feel that sense of relief then. And that the bowing of the knee will just be with such relief and with such pure joy and such great gratitude. We have to acknowledge, too, that for many people there will not be relief. Sometimes this passage is used to try to suggest that in the end everyone gets saved. And there is a part of just about all of us that kind of wishes that it could be true that every single person will be saved. I think that's just a very human thing to feel. Very natural. But the fact is that that is not what the Bible says will happen. Every knee will have to bow to Jesus. And indeed, as we're going to see, every knee will have to confess him as God. And we'll have to confess that, yes, he is the master of the universe. And yes, he was the savior who could have saved them. And yes, he was raised from the dead. And now he is the judge. But for some, that will be a terrible thing. Because they haven't embraced him. And the uh, the passage in Isaiah really nails this, I think. Paul is clearly drawing from it. And he's clearly showing that there is a set of people for whom this will be tremendously difficult. Now, that's something which should motivate us now, and I'll come on to that in a moment. Let's see the other part of this future, this uh, ending of the uh, season five of the box set. Verse 11, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be the bowing of the knee, and there will be the confession, and even if it's through gritted teeth, people will have to say, yes, you were right. Yes, you are Lord. And for those who are in him and who love him, there will be such praise, such glory. I just just love the singing this morning. It did such a lot for me. It sort of took me into this place where it all seemed more real and there was a gospel energy released in me as I was singing. And I think I sensed it in others of you as well. And the music group served us so wonderfully in helping us there as the Holy Spirit was working. At the return of Christ, as we confess Jesus as Lord, it will be a hundred times magnified with nothing else mixed in. Relief and ecstasy. Isn't that glorious? And at the end of that passage in Isaiah, I just want you to to pick out one word. Just one word from that. They will make their boast in him. We'll give him all the glory. It is to the glory of God the Father. He is glorified in the acknowledgement of the unbelievers. How much more glorified in the boasting and the rejoicing of those who are Christ's. What an experience that's going to be. Divine joy in Human glorying and human joy and divine joy and divine joy and human joy and the thing multiplies and multiplies. I don't know whether arithmetically is the right word. It compounds and compounds and compounds forever. The universal acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
How should we apply this? First, I have to apply it to those who are not Christians. I'm so glad you're here, and I think it's great that you can come. And I think it's great that you can come and come back and keep coming, and that you feel at ease in doing so. And I hope you're making progress in understanding and realizing the implications and the content of the Christian faith. But this morning with a text like this, I have to say to you, you do need to make your mind up. You really do need to turn to Christ now. You need to turn to Christ and receive him as saviour and receive him as Lord. Because now you know that you will have to acknowledge him as Lord at some point. And you really, really seriously do not want to be in the position of having rejected him now and acknowledge him as Lord and then be sent off into eternal shame and eternal punishment in season five. Now, this is deadly serious. And I don't want to coerce or bully or force anyone into Christian faith, but I have to say to you, this is deadly serious and it really matters for your eternal condition. And the Lord Jesus Christ asks you now and invites you now to consent to him being your saviour and Lord. I have to apply this too to those of you who would say, well, I'm sort of a Christian. I may be regular in church, but actually there's a dividedness about that. Maybe you come partly because your family make you come, or you feel you should because of family pressure, different kinds. There may be other things that draw you here, and it gives you a bit of an uplift so you can get on with life in a normal way, and church is a place of peace on a Sunday morning or something like that. I have to say to you, are you just playing around with Jesus? Are you really taking Jesus seriously? Just with a little that you've been reminded of this morning, have you not sensed that he is supremely great? He's done all this for you. Where's the seriousness in return? Where's the wholehearted commitment in return? Where's the giving of yourself in return? Come back to him. Consent to him again. For those facing the kinds of conflict and challenge that come to us all, to follow Jesus in a hostile world, and the temptation to make compromises, and the temptation to shut up and try to lead a life without any, any possibility of anyone sneering at you for being a Christian. Friends, we have to take seriously again the fact that in the end, we Christians are going to be proved to be right. Only because Jesus is right, it's not because we're great people, but we will be proved to be right. We need to start believing that now and receiving the kind of gentle strength that being absolutely sure that you're right gives. It's a very gentle kind of strength. 
It means you can do almost anything. And as we receive that, and in a gentle way, we speak about Jesus. The Holy Spirit will work in people's hearts and will draw them. And will draw them to find him as Lord now, not later. And then we have to bring it back. So the point about human relationships that Paul made the starting point of this great tracing of the arc of Christ's descent and ascent again. One writer on Philippians, George Guthrie, who's an old friend of Eden, been here many times, has a section in his commentary where he just asks a few questions of his readers. How am I promoting unity in the church through humility? How am I serving my fellow followers of Christ? Of what advantage am I letting go in order to serve? Is my way the way of power? or of humble sacrifice? Can you feel Christ's invitation to take steps forward in joining him in voluntary servanthood and self-humiliation for the sake of the church and the sake of the gospel? And will you hear him say, from the point of view of the one who went to the cross and then was raised again and has been exalted and will be acclaimed by everyone, will you hear him say, it's worth it. And this is the way to be great. Let's be quiet for a moment and then I'll pray. We bow before you in worship and adoration. We acknowledge you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord and have the name above every name. What calm and peace that gives us. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Do not delay longer than is needed for the full gathering in of your people. Until then, Lord, give us confidence to proclaim your name in Cambridge and through the UK and to the ends of the earth for the glory of God the Father.